Well, I was having a conversation with someone in our community in recent weeks, and uh, we got to talking, and uh, of course, if I'm sitting in a restaurant, it's usually with a Bible or some type of book of theology or something sitting there. Uh, my lunches tend to be working lunches, and uh, the conversation about church came up, and uh, he made the comment, I don't go to church because of, some of you all probably know the word that's coming next, because churches are just full of hypocrites. And so it was a, a teaching moment, and I was able to explain that the difference between churchgoers and hypocrites that hypocrites are people that wag their fingers at people and say, you shouldn't do that, and then they turn around and do the very thing they tell someone not to do. That's a hypocrite, right, church? But that the people that I know that go to church probably aren't doing a whole lot of that, if any at all. That we simply gather here not because we're good enough or because we think we're better than other people, we gather here because we know we will never be good enough. Right, church? That we need God's love. We need, we rely daily on God's grace. And so that is the reason we gather here. To worship a God who sent us a Savior. And so he seemed open to hearing what I had to say. Uh, not sure where those planted seeds might go in his life. Someone who has been in church in the past and has stepped away. And some of you may have experienced that in your own life or know others who have experienced that. Stepped away from church for a while only to come back later. But it reminded me of the importance that when people know that we are churchgoers, when they know that we are God's children, that they certainly find something in us worthy of the name Christian that we are indeed somehow different than many of the folks in the world around us. And so I invite you to join me in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to begin with verse 12. The next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, this is always one of those things that was, is troubling to me, that Jesus goes to a tree, that, and Mark tells us clearly, as Mark often does, Mark in his gospel tends to give his readers a bit of extra information. He tells us it was not the season for the figs to be there. But if you've heard me or anyone else teach on this passage before, you probably know that the nature of fig trees is such that even when there are not Figs, when there is not ripe fruit that is in season, there are these little nodules, you might say, these little things on there called knops, or some, some of the stuff I've read referred to them as knobs. But these knops, their, 
they, they signify that there's going to be figs in when, when the season is, is there. That there is going to be ripe fruit on that tree in about three or four months. That if the leaves are present, there should be these knobs. And so even though there are not figs on the tree, ripe fruit, these knobs are in fact edible. While not as tasty as the ripe fruit that the tree would later bear, the knops themselves are indeed edible. And for someone who is hungry, and Mark is just reminding us here of the humanity of Jesus, isn't he, church? That if someone is in fact really hungry, and you know what that's like. When you're really hungry, you lower your standards, don't you? You know, when you're really hungry... Sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to satisfy you. You know, a cheese and cracker, a peanut butter and cracker, just something something simple like that uh, can hit the spot. And Jesus going up to this tree is expecting to at least find these knops and he can break a few of those off and eat them and at least satisfy the hunger. But there are no knops on the tree. And so why does Jesus then curse the tree? Well, because the tree, church, is symbolic. The tree is symbolic of people that are children of God. Because you expect something out of the child of God. You expect something out of a fig tree that has leaves on it. If not the fruit, at least the knops that signify that the fruit will be there in season. And so the tree, in fact, is a bit of an imposter. It has the leaves. It's signifying there is at least something here that will feed you. But yet when Jesus arrives, he sees that no, there is not. There is nothing here that will feed him or anyone else. Nor will there be when the season for figs arrives in a few months. And so when people look at us, what do they see? Knowing that we're church-going people, knowing that we are children of God, when they need something from us, When they need us to be kind, when they need us to be encouraging, when they need us to be compassionate, what do they find when they arrive? Do they find something that will satisfy a portion at least of their spiritual hunger? Or do they in fact find an imposter? You see, the church, for for us church, the tree is something we have to pay attention to. That we don't want to be that tree that is the imposter. And then we move along in Mark 11 because Mark does what he often does. He puts a story within a story. And so he places here the cleansing of the temple because it goes along with this theme of something not being as it should. 
And so in verse 15 of Mark 11, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was, what church? Amazed at his teaching. And that strikes me right there. Because I've long looked at this. I remember when I was young saying, okay, this is the emotion of anger and this is where anger is correctly placed. I always saw this as a bit of sort of blind anger on the part of Jesus. That he is just grabbing a hold of tables and putting them up on their end and anything on those tables goes flying away and that he is just in an absolute blind rage over what is going on in the temple. And if you know the background here, people would come to make sacrifices and they would bring their own animal to sacrifice. It might be a bird, it might be some kind of animal. And what was often the case is the the people in the temple, the priests in the temple, and, and the Levites attending to the temple, they would look at the animals or the birds and they would find blemishes. They would find blemishes that were not really there. And so they would say, no, that is not good enough to sacrifice here at the temple. And then they would turn around and say, but we have something right here for you to sacrifice that is unblemished. And of course... It's like changing money in a hotel or an airport. You don't want to do that if you're traveling abroad. Uh, the, the, the rate is way higher. And so in other words, people were being taken advantage of. And who are these people that are being taken advantage of? Well, very typically, it's poor people. And so there's an element of social justice going on here that Jesus is outraged because of the poor. But Mark tells us twice there, in these few verses, that he is teaching. Now, somebody that's in a blind rage, you're probably not going to have a captive audience for teaching. So while this is some degree of anger, some degree of reckoning because of social justice, Mark takes the time to tell us, church, not once but twice... He says it was when he was teaching. And then in verse 18, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And so he takes the time to teach them in that moment. I used the term earlier, a teachable moment. That was what Jesus found. Of course, I think every moment to Jesus was a teaching moment. But... Nonetheless, he is someone who is, even in his frustration over how the temple was being treated, he's not in some blind fit, some blind rage of anger. He is still teaching the people. 
And what's he teaching them here? That this is not a place where people expect to be duped. Where people expect to be taken advantage of. People walk into that grand temple and they are expecting an experience. A religious experience. They are looking to be spiritually fed on some level. And what are they greeted with? People who want money. People who want their money. People who are perfectly content to work in a temple, a house of God, and yet take advantage of people. And so the reason Mark puts these stories together here in Mark 11 is because they have something in common. That it shouldn't be that when people encounter the church or church people, that they should go away empty or even go away angry because someone took advantage of them. And so the lesson for us today is that we need to be people who are real. We need to be people who are authentic. And no, this message, uh, there's nothing going on at the Hohenwald Church of Christ where we're systematically taking advantage of people. That's not what's going on here. But simply that us as individuals need to be people who are of an ethical quality that we don't take advantage of people. That when people see that we are bearing leaves and they, they go expecting something that will feed them spiritually, that they don't come up empty. And what that requires from us, church, is a dose of authenticity. That we have to be real. That we're not acting like people who are good enough. That people out in the world know that we're the kind of people who say, I will never be good enough. That I rely daily on God's grace. Bob Goff has a couple of quotes. One says, God doesn't think any less of us when things don't go right. Actually, I think he plans on it. What he doesn't plan on uh, <clears throat> on is us putting a fake version of ourselves out there to take the hit. God is the master artist and made an original version of us, a priceless one that cost everything to create, a version that can't and won't be created again. It's pretty clear from watching Jesus' followers past and present that when you risk the real you, you'll probably take a hit. God did when he hung Jesus out there. But one thing I do know is this. When we do take hits, and we will, God isn't going to think less of us. Instead, he gets up early, lights a fire, sits in his favorite chair, and gazes at the original masterpiece he made in us. And when I first read that, I thought, you know, that's kind of an odd image of God. 
lighting a fire, sitting back in the comfy chair, and gazing upon people. But then I remember, well, just like last week, we read a little bit from Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light, right church? And he saw the light, and he saw that the light was what? Good, that's right. And the number of times that God creates there in Genesis 1, and then follows it by saying, it is good. I lost track of the number of times in the creation account that God says it is good. But it's not just two or three. It is several times that God gazes upon His creation and says, it is good. And then, at the end of all creation, what did He save for last? Ta-da! The human creature, in all their fallibility, in all of our imperfection, but yet, He created us in His image. And so if everything else He created He thought was good, why would He think any less of us? And so the idea that God is on His throne, that God is pulling for us, that God is rooting for us. We know that the Godhead or the Trinity is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Scripture tells us that the Son and the Holy Spirit are both advocates for us. Two-thirds of the Godhead advocates for the human creatures that sometimes can't get out of their own way. That's how much God loves us. But God wants us to be true. And God wants us to be real. God wants us, church, to be authentic. To be real. That people around us can see us for who we really are. That just as Jesus still bore His scars after His resurrection, that we still bear our scars after our baptism. Let's not kid ourselves. We're all the time gathering more scars, aren't we? But he calls us to be people who show others our scars, just as Jesus did. To say, hey, this is what I've been through. But we have a loving God. And it's not because I'm good enough. It's simply because he loves us. As we look at the last part of this section of Mark 11. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what, believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it 
will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against someone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And so he closes this section out. Here is Jesus saying, this is how it is. It all comes back to prayer. Because prayer, as Jesus teaches, is a manifestation or result of our faith. That we need to be people of prayer, but we also need to be people of what? Of forgiveness. We talk about being real. I just finished a book in recent days called A Most Beautiful Thing. And it's a story of a group of black high school students on the west side of Chicago. And uh, someone uh, decides to start a crew team, a rowing team. And so he went around to all these different high schools and they all turned him down. And he gets to Manly High School in Chicago. And Manly says, sure, we'll let you come in here at after school and start a crew team. Because the guy was going to supply the ergs, the rowing machines, these high-tech rowing machines with monitors on them. And he was going to supply all the equipment. And he had even arranged for a couple of coaches, a strength and conditioning coach and a crew coach. And he was going to fund the program out of his own pocket because he felt like people coming and learning to do this together would potentially change their lives. And boy, was he right. And to get a glimpse of what their lives were like. And, you know, there's a place in the book where they're in the boat and the, the, the author of the book Arshay Cooper is saying, I'm looking around and all these prep schools that we're competing against. And he's saying, you know, this is a sport. His, his, his mind is telling him, you don't deserve to be here. You shouldn't be in this boat. You know, you don't even know how to swim well. And he, he says his mind is telling him, you know, Arshay, this is a sport that they do at Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge. And you growing up on the west side, you have no business doing this. And I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, boy, how often do Christians talk ourselves out of things? How often do we hear those voices that say, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're never going to be good enough. Even those voices that might even say, mm, are you sure you're not a hypocrite? You've got a preacher who says, no, you're not. You're a churchgoer. And there's a difference. But there's a passage in the book, a couple little passages I want to share before we close out our time together today. He talks about going into uh, the barbershop. And he says in the black community, he says the barbershop is the black man's country club. He says, I open the door and the bell clangs. My barber D looks up and smiles. I know he spent some time in prison, but I'm not sure what for. All I know is he is one wise dude and always kicking knowledge to the young bucks in the shop. <laughs> He's in his mid-30s. Old wise sage right there, right? Mid-30s. 
short and beefy and can pass for a macho man. How is school, Arche? D says. It's cool. I want to try out for the basketball team, but I'm mad scared. I see he doesn't even have the courage to tell him he's thinking about doing crew. Because on the west side of Chicago, a bunch of Chicago Bulls fans are pulling for Michael Jordan. He knows that basketball is king. Basketball is cool. But he's not going to mention something called crow, crew, or rowing. But listen to what the barber says, bro. You have to be willing to do it afraid. I was scared when I cut hair for the first time, but I did it. I slip into his chair. He says, I guess I'm just distracted. Boy, don't let the small distractions destroy your journey. Just keep going forward. You'll get there. How many times in the New Testament does Paul talk about moving forward? Going forward. But this idea that he says... You have to do it scared. We talk about peace and comfort from God. And sometimes we might make the mistake of presenting it that, well, when we have God's peace, it means that we're never scared. No, I don't think that's what God's peace means. It means that when we have God's peace, we have the strength to do it in spite of being scared. That's what God's peace is. It doesn't mean all the apprehensions just poof, magically go away. It means that we summon the strength and muster the courage to move forward in spite of the fear that we have. And being real and being authentic, being real until it hurts, being real until we're vulnerable, means we're going to have to do it scared. Another passage I want to read, he says, I look around the gym and see students I know from the neighborhood and some I don't. These are sons of drug addicts, prostitutes, gang members, and drug dealers. The people that we will race are possibly sons of lawyers, doctors, professors, and salesmen. I try to picture us in a boat next to them. I think about the man who told me at the barber shop, what the man told me at the barber shop. Maybe I can succeed like these coaches are telling us. Despite everything, I still believe in seizing the moment and that an opportunity is a gift. My mother taught me that. I lean over to Preston one more time. Where do we sign up? And so church, I hope your attitude about being authentic and being real, and maybe some of you are, But maybe you can be to a greater extent. I hope your attitude this morning is ultimately, where do I sign up? Because that's what God is calling us to do. That's who God is calling us to become. Fear is what keeps us from being who God really made. From who we really are. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Scripture also tells us that perfect love drives out 
fear. So church family, don't let your fear, don't let your apprehensions of what other people might think keep you from being that authentic masterpiece that God created. Don't put some counterfeit fake version of yourself out there so that when people go to the tree looking for fruit, and it may not be fruit that's in season, They at least want the knops. They want that which can give them some satisfaction. Jesus' followers originally, they weren't theologians. They weren't seminary graduates. They were ordinary blue-collar people. But they bore spiritual fruit. And that is why we are still gathering in His name almost 2,000 years later. Church family, let's be the people that God calls us to be. Let's be people who are real. If you are with us today and you have not yet given your life to Christ, we offer the invitation so that you can change that once and for all. And if you're with us today, and you need us to pray with you about something, then we are here to do so. It's why we extend the invitation. Let's stand and sing this song together.